Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey, Jonathan, how's it going this week? It's going well. Had a great time this week at the executive committee meetings on Monday and a little bit on Tuesday, and then had to fly out to Dallas. Uh, was with a, about 120 executive pastors on Wednesday uh, of this week and got to hang out and meet with them at uh, a big executive pastor summit there in the Dallas area. So uh, it's it's been a busy week, as uh, you would expect, I guess, from executive committee week. And, and we've got some news. It, it has been it has been a busy week. I've been here in Wake Forest, just kind of doing day to day life, but certainly have not uh, have not missed what's going on. There's been a lot of things coming out of Nashville. Yeah, we've had slow weeks in the SBC and the news, uh, as you know, as it goes with news. This was not one of them. It uh, was not the story on everyone's uh, mouths and minds. I guess you could say this week here in Nashville was on Prestonwood announcing that they would be escrowing their cooperative program funds. Uh, we have Dr. Stephen Rummage that's going to come on and, and talk about this next week on the podcast. That's important because the executive committee uh, assigned an ad hoc committee uh, to study uh, a concern that they have of churches escrowing cooperative program funds. Yeah, so this is a story that dropped last week after you and I had recorded. Um, so it's something that we've all been sort of sort of watching. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing from Dr. Rummage uh, next week, just because you know we can get a little nervous when we hear oh the executive committee has appointed a, a group to sort of look into this. The truth is, I mean, this is this is what the executive committee is there to do. We are having an active discussion. Uh, cooperative program decisions are being made. Um, it's they're they're just saying, all right, let's let's start figuring this out. Let's talk about this. And so it so as they act on behalf of the Southern Baptist Convention in those 363 other days of the year, uh, they're they're doing that job. And so uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from him next week. Yes, and in other actions uh, by the executive committee this week, the SBTC, speaking of them, Jim Richards presented the uh, executive committee with a special CP gift of $200,000. Uh, it was in addition to the 55% that SBTC forwards on to the convention and did in 2016. They also approved a cooperative program allocation budget for next year, 2017-18, of $192 million to recommend to the SBC for approval in Phoenix. Um, the allocations stay the same as they have been. Uh, one slight change in allocation that the executive committee uh, put forward was to say that if there's anything above cooperative program giving, uh, the executive committee is going to forego the what is now 2.4% uh, that they get from any excess CP funds uh, down to zero. So it, it, basically that means if we go over that $192 million in 1718, anything over and above, it won't be split like it has been. Uh, the executive committee will pass their 2.4% onto IMB, uh, raising their percentage uh, a little bit more. So uh, there's just a, a little bit of bookkeeping there. It would move the IMB percentage to uh, 53.4% of any overage that comes in in 2017-18, and I, I suppose beyond. They also passed a resolution uh, honoring Mark Edlin for his service to the Colorado Baptist General Convention and took some action on a couple of uh, motions that came from the they declined to recommend that the SBC affiliate with the National Association of Evangelicals, leaving that to churches instead. And they also 
uh, kept the seminary funding formula for Gateway. Uh, they have two main campuses, the main northern campus, southern campus, until at least 2019-20. Uh, so that that just goes along with the uh, how things are allocated for uh, cooperative program dollars for seminaries, right, Amy? Right, because they've had that relocation, uh, so they're having probably students, I guess that that stayed near where the other campus was. They're they're finishing up there. That instead of treating it like a maybe an extension center or something like that, they're they're allowing uh, both campuses to be included in the calculation for now because of this transition time. Yep, they also reelected Randy Pittman and Key Holloman, uh, both from Nashville, to another three-year term as the Southern Baptist Foundation trustees, and authorized a 2.1% increase in executive committee salary structure. Uh, this is basically a cost of living adjustment that they do almost every year. There was one year they skipped it. They have an outside group come in and examine the salaries at the executive committee, and they recommend uh, the you know their increase or decrease kind of standard for an organization that size, and also approved the continuing contract with one Barry McCarty to serve as the chief parliamentarian for this year's annual meeting. Amy, I'm sorry, it's not you. It's Barry still. Um, there is no one more qualified than Barry McCarty. So I, uh, I celebrate with everyone else that uh, he will be up on stage. Yeah, that was one of those, well, of course they did, you know, kind of right. decisions. Right. Um, also approved the calendar of activities and some changes uh, to reflect some just naming conventions uh, for the next few years. Two more pieces of news here, and these are these are kind of biggies. I don't want to skip over these. Number one, constitutional amendment was declined. I'm just going to read this from Baptist Press. There was a motion to amend Article 3 of the Constitution uh, to deal with racial uh, discrimination in churches. So Article 3 is where it talks about how churches are considered to be in cooperation yes. with the convention. And Part 1 of Article 3 um, says that a church is deemed to be in friendly cooperation, sympathetic with its purposes and work, if, and it's got these three things, some of it's giving money, uh, you know, other things, but one of them is has a faith and practice which closely identifies with the convention's adopted statement of faith. And then they say, by way of example, churches which act to affirm, approve, or endorse homosexual behavior would be deemed not to be in cooperation with the convention. So that's not listed as a sort of only thing. It's listed as way of example. Yeah. And they wanted and to the, add racial discrimination into that, right? Right. Yes. That's correct. So they declined this, but this is why. Dr. Page said, we don't want anyone to think we're accepting racial discrimination as anything less than reprehensible. We simply realize there are a plethora of issues that could have been added to Article 3 exclusionary list. So you could you could add all kind of stuff, you know, promoting yeah. abortion, uh, I, I don't know what else it may be, um, you know, going against anything that's in the Baptist faith and message, you know, maybe it's pastoral qualifications, things like that. There, there's a lot of things. But he said, if there is evidence of systemic official racial discrimination on the part of any church, we will deal with that. Right. So, so what he's saying is that sentence that says has a faith and practice which closely identifies with the convention's adopted statement of faith already covers a number of these things. Yes. We don't have to list every little thing. Right. There is a, an example listed there, and that's it. So the, the, the declining was not to say, oh, we're not going to care about that. It was to say, we're going to leave this one example there, but we believe that Article 3, Section 1, you know, Part 1 already covers that. Yes. I think if there was an issue, I, I'm pretty certain that the SBC Executive Committee and leaders would deal with that um, Absolutely. quite swiftly. And then finally, there's the SBC building possibility of a sale. 
So they are going to study the advisability and feasibility of a sale in light of the interest being expressed in developing area of Nashville uh, downtown area, basically because Lifeway just got $125 million for its property that's sitting right next door. Uh, that's not in the story. That's, that's, that's commentary from Jonathan there. <laughs> it, it's something that would... Nashville is is a great place to sell property right now, I would say, whether it's a home or a business. And so it would only make sense to at least see if it's a good move. Yeah. So, and they're saying they made it clear that we don't have to sell it and we don't need to sell it, but the option might be there and they may be able to make a significant profit from it and consolidate or relocate uh, as needed. So we'll see what happens with that. I no idea if they'll wind up selling it or not. There's a couple of uh, hitches that get, go along with selling it. Uh, one major one being the relocation of the SBC Historical Library and Archives, and where yeah. and how you you do that. Um, that's a big, big factor here. So huge. Uh, we'll see about that. But we're excited though to have Dr. Stephen Rummage, the chairman of the executive committee, on next week. He's going to talk to us. He's the pastor of Bellshills Baptist Church in Brandon, Florida. So uh, yes. we'll have him on here to talk about the escrowing of funds and the ad hoc committee that was appointed, actually two of them, uh, to study this. So uh, that, that'll that be a, a good thing to see next week. We mentioned there's a story about that. Also, Dr. Gaines spoke at the executive committee, uh, a very good sermon on Monday night. And also, Dr. Page, there's a, a wrap-up from his report on stewardship of churches uh, talking about the cooperative program and, and how impactful that has been for Southern Baptist in its history. Oh, more than $6 billion have been given through the cooperative program in its 90-plus years. 97 years, I think, is the, the number, if I remember from the video that they showed. But, um, you know, that, that's just a staggering number. And considering and thinking about the work that that has done, uh, that is something else. Yeah, that's incredible. So uh, we, we have an update on a story from Texas. It's kind of uh, something we've been tracking for a little while, developments. Uh, and why don't you break it down for us yeah, a little we, bit, Yeah, you remember we talked about the BGC voting 63 to 6 to disassociate with Wilshire Baptist Church in Dallas, First Baptist Church Austin, and Lakeshore Baptist in Waco. Uh, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, a more liberal-leaning uh, denomination and, and group of churches, have created a Fellowship Southwest, which is a network of CBF regions in Texas, Oklahoma, and the far west to promote Baptist identity, Christian cooperation, and accomplish effective mission and ministry among related partners. Uh, That seems to be a lot of uh, text to say we're creating a place for these churches that get kicked out of BGCT for their affirmation of homosexuality to associate. So we're going to keep an eye on that. It's one of these things where the BGCT... Uh, moving away from uh, some of the more liberal stances that it, it may have had in the past. Is that a, is that a mm-hmm. fair assertion? Well, at least maybe not going. I mean, they, they're if they go in a direction, they are stopping. Yes. But uh, this fits in some ways with I've seen more things from the BGCT lately and even some cooperation with uh, SBC groups and things like that. I would just say more. It's not that it's not that it was ever com- had ever completely disappeared, no. but it certainly had lessened. And I feel like I am seeing more uh, in recent months than I have. Yes, and and for Southern Baptist churches still associated with the BGCT, that is a good thing. Uh, we'll kind of keep an eye on this to see exactly what happens. Uh, but you know, it, it's something that is affecting churches and uh, one of our major conventions over in. Texas. Yes. All right. Amy, I've talked a lot. 
but there's a lot going on at Southeastern, and you have got to talk about one of these especially, uh, but both of them really. So yes, one uh, piece of news that we released and has uh, gone up at Baptist Press, so we'll we'll share that in the show notes is a academic society uh, for women. It's called the Society for Women in Scholarship that uh, was really launched by some of our students. One that uh, you know very well, Becca Stone King, who's oh, yeah. there at Lifeway now, uh, one of our doctoral students here. And uh, so this was something that she and uh, another friend, uh, Amber Bowen, who is uh, an MA in philosophy student here, they sort of just were dreaming one day and started uh I think really getting encouragement from each other. And then they started wanting to kind of invite other uh, female students just to coffee outings, things like that. And it just kind of sparked this idea. So it's something that has uh, really developed over the last uh, several months. And I mean, it's really just there to be, uh, it's a place to uh, encourage each other, talk to each other. They're going to, uh, work together on where they can publish work. Uh, they want to sponsor events, bring in speakers, uh, sponsor some things for the entire campus, not just for uh, them, but bring bring in speakers so that it can encourage um, scholarship uh, together. So it's, it's a really great group. I have uh, gone to some of their meetings. I've worked with a lot of uh, the, the ladies that are, are in it. And uh, it's it's an exciting thing uh, around here. They're bringing in um, a speaker in just uh, next month, I think, or so- something like that. And everyone's very excited about it. Yep. So exciting times for the women students over at Southeastern and also the development of a Persian leadership program. Yes. Uh, so we have a Hispanic uh, leadership development uh, program. Edgar Aponte had kind of come here and started that. And now Miguel... Too. That was oh. pretty cool. Yes, we miss Edgar around here. Um, now Miguel Echevarria has taken that on, uh, but but we have now launched uh, the Persian Leadership Program. So with Cambies, um, Cambies, yes. Those of you who may have been at Southeastern's alumni luncheon last year at the SBC, Cambies was sort of our main speaker at the end. Yeah, that was pretty um, awesome. Just an, an unbelievable story. He was one of our distance learning students while he was in the Middle East. He faced a lot of persecution for his faith where he was. Uh, they, uh, He and his family, they live here now, and they want to keep helping uh, the Persian church. So this is really an opportunity through our global theological initiatives to reach out to those um, that are around the world, help them to receive uh, real, um, accessible, good theological training. And, uh, I mean, the, the ultimate goal is to have a program in Farsi, um, to, to reach out to those around the world. And he's, he is phenomenal. I love working with, uh, Cumbies, our global theological initiatives office, an amazing team. Uh, so we got a lot of fun things going on here. Yeah. That's a pretty cool thing because as we talk about reaching Muslims overseas and the limitless missionaries and things like that, programs like this, are going to be very important to the training of those uh, pastors and leaders that are going overseas and that are already over there, really, uh, and educating them solidly with good theological training. So exciting to see another leadership program, especially one based uh, around Farsi uh, at Southeastern. 
in that same story uh, that we mentioned just now, the uh, the Persian Leadership Program, there's a, a story about the second annual West Tennessee Evangelism Rally. Steve Gaines is going to be headlining that. It is associated with Union University over in Jackson, Tennessee. Ernest Easley, uh, one of the evangelism professors over there, uh, you know, they had more than 800 people last year at the event. So it uh, should be exciting to see that. It's going to be March the 5th. Uh, you can find out more information and register over at the Union website and the link that we have here at sbcthisweek.com. All right, one more story, and then we have some LifeWay research, Amy. The Employee Benefits Summit, uh, Guidestone, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the video series these guys are putting out. They're going to have an inaugural Employee Benefits Summit uh, March 27th to 29th. It's for human resource professionals and other financial officers of churches and ministries. Uh, registration information and the links to all that, uh, as well as all the speakers. Uh, they're going to have Richard Hammer speaking about it, in which wow. he's, he's a pretty big deal. I'm a big fan of his. Uh, he is the guy that does all the compensation stuff, uh, puts together this massive compensation study. Dr. Rayner is a huge fan of Dr. Hammer. So we have an opportunity every year to kind of talk with him about uh, church compensation and stuff on the blog. So uh, he's headlining it. Uh, they have people from the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Beckett Fund, all kind of other experts on uh, church employment and benefits. Uh, so if you're in that area or uh, you have somebody on staff, have them check that out. The link is at sbcthisweek.com. And Amy, that's going to bring us to some LifeWay research talking about domestic violence in the church. Yeah, this is very interesting. Uh, and, I, and I think a good thing to be asking. Uh, so they reached out and asked uh, Protestant pastors the questions of whether or not your church has a specific plan or procedures in place for how to respond if someone shares that they're experiencing domestic violence. And uh, it was split almost down the middle. Yeah, I was surprised that the no was so high here. I mean, it, it we know this is an issue in culture and in you know in everyday life, domestic violence and stuff. But only basically half of churches don't have a plan, and half of churches do. Yeah. Now let's let's be clear here. We're talking about actually having a plan because they did say uh, when they asked the question, you know, a person experiencing domestic violence would find our church to be a safe haven. Um, 87% strongly agree with that. Yeah, I would hope so, yeah. Yeah, 89% agree that their church regularly communicates domestic violence is not okay. But half of them, or almost half of them, said they don't know if anyone in their church has been a victim of domestic violence in the last three years. Um, And then they're half and half on whether or not they have a specific plan for what to do if someone comes. So, So this is not necessarily about church's position on domestic violence or their level of compassion and maybe more about their uh, sort of proactiveness at preparing for this reality. Yeah, the, the system's in place for it. So, But if they do have a, a plan in place, the most common thing is that they refer them to professional counselors trained in domestic violence. This is something Dr. Rainer and I talk about quite a bit on the blog is pastors need to have a referral network for all kinds of things, whether it be domestic abuse, whether it be eating disorders for, for teenagers or adults, you know, things like that, that, that they can refer people to specifically for uh, these types of issues. That's the number one thing. 76% of churches that have a plan have a referral list with professional counselors. And tell me, what do you think, what do you think, and this is just opinion, speculation, contributes to this? Do you think it is uh, maybe just the the hope that these things are not happening. Do you think it's uh, small churches, small staff uh, that just t- so much to to do? What what do you, what would you guess? You're connecting with pastors on a much more daily basis than I am. I think pastors don't 
have these cases come up in churches as much because people don't see this as a church counseling issue. Okay. I, I think more of them take these type of issues to outside more secular or even Christian counselors, but just not counselors in the church. But but I also think that there are a lot of cases that go either undiagnosed or quiet in the church. Sure, yeah. Uh, so I think churches, they don't, I mean, you, you even mentioned that people that, you know, that are aware of it in their church, just, it's just not, the awareness is not there. And maybe that plays into the fact that churches don't have it or have, right. you know, have plans. I, I don't know. Very interesting. Um, what well, about you? I, I don't know. I mean, part of me would just guess that. I, I'm guessing, and, and I'm not accusing anyone at the seminary, but I'm guessing that you have a domestic abuse policy and procedure plan for the seminary. I mean, as far, you know, with students and, and I guess faculty as well. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and we have policies on those types of things. We have them, I think, in, you know, student policies and faculty staff policies, things like that. I, but more like procedures than policy. I'm talking like if it happens, then what? Right, uh, right. Yes. I would guess. And and your organizations are going to have to have that because they know they need to. And they also have the staff support and the resources to sort of put those things together. I don't know. Part of my speculation just is that you have a lot of churches with small staffs. You, they're dealing with a lot of things all the time. Um, they're dealing with ministry situations on the fly constantly, new things they never expected. I mean, part of me just wonders if some people uh, or some churches are just kind of behind in the uh, making, setting up procedures and plans for everything. I don't know. That's just a guess. Yeah, this is an area I don't have a lot of experience in, you know, dealing with, you know, people who've been victims of it. I, I just don't, that's yeah. something that just hasn't really played a part in uh, in my life. So, you know, this is these are good research questions and just another example of life of research highlighting something that we may not always think about in the church but but it's good to think about and and you know, consider does our church have a plan. So, right. thanks again to Lifeway Research for this project. And uh, that's going to bring us to my favorite part of the week. This week in SBC history, Amy, blow our minds. Well, I'm actually going to bring up some data from 1967. Uh, so, you know, I enjoy as I'm uh, digging through all of these old issues of Baptist Press, if I uh, find a survey, I think it's just fascinating because it just tells us something about where people were at a given time. The February 22nd issue of Baptist Press in 1967 uh, published a survey that had been done. Uh, it was more than 6,800 Baptist leaders from 590 churches, and they, uh, they those were the ones that received it. And 3,445 uh, usable questionnaires were returned. It was about attitudes of church leadership toward the Southern Baptist Convention. So again, let's get some context. It's 1967. Um, our convention was in a very different place. Our country was in a very different place. Uh, but as you start looking at this, it's just very interesting. Uh, so the Research and Statistics Department of the Baptist Sunday School Board did this. So it's kind of the precursor the to Lifeway Research. forerunners of Lifeway Research. That's yeah. right, of Lifeway Research. So very interesting. Uh, it said that um, one question that was up was about federal aid in the form of grants or loans. Not something we think about getting uh, questions here, but it said 47.1% were opposed to grants under any circumstance, 25.1% that they didn't favor government grants as a rule. Um, 
government loans, a little bit less opposition. So this was just something that was on people's mind. Um, 82% of the respondents felt Baptist colleges are vital to the denomination. Hmm. Um, and I, it would be interesting to see what a comparative survey now, and I would imagine yeah. you'd have a different result in the states where there's still a very active yeah. uh, relationship with Baptist colleges, obviously. Yes, yeah, a state like Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Oklahoma, especially, um, right. as opposed to um, another state, you know, North yeah. Carolina. I think you guys have kind of lost ties with, or Tennessee, the, yeah, uh, with they, Belmont and Carson Newman, those kind of things. Yeah, not not as connected. Um, they actually had them rate the work of the agencies and organizations. That and, would be fascinating. Yes, and so the highest number of excellent ratings were given to the Sunday School Board and the Foreign Mission Board. Um, this was interesting. Yes, this was interesting. The pastors, because they had them categorized by, uh, you know, whether they were chairman of deacons, training union leaders, different things. Pastors were the ones most critical. Um, WMU presidents were the most favorable toward the convention. Um, one thing was very interesting about 70% of pastors and 61% of music, uh, workers agreed that the, race relations reputation was bad um, of the SBC. 50 to 63% of lay leaders said it was not bad. So that's kind of interesting. And of course you go forward to uh, 1995 where we actually spoke as a convention and said, uh, yes, this was, this was not good, but this kind of gives a, a feel for um, where people were in the moment and understanding kind of how we, how, how, how we were communicating in this area. They did get to the politics question. The politics politics question, question, Amy. Okay. Um, Almost two thirds of the respondents felt that Southern Baptists should be willing to involve themselves in the profession, general process and specific issues of politics. So there you go. There's your moral majority laying the groundwork right there 20 years before it actually got going. It it was interesting. There's a, uh, up at the top, it talks about more than two thirds of the respondents agreed to some extent that Southern Baptist churches often seem to be afraid to face controversial issues, Hmm. uh, which is interesting. And then when you look at that question down there, that they think that Southern Baptists should be willing to involve themselves. So it seems like there was a desire to become more, Um, vocal in these issues. Uh, And then they had a checklist of 23 words, and the words considered most descriptive of the SBC were well-organized and missions-minded. I agree Um, with one of those. um, Well, would you like to expand on that? Nope. Okay. Uh, (laughs) I I got tickled over the title, though. Uh, That's my favorite part. So the this study was, this is in the the days before Scott McConnell came along and probably knew how to title these things. Here was the study of the research. Southern Baptists speak out 66. And then it was designed to obtain a profile of attitudes toward the Southern Baptist convention on the part of Southern Baptists. So um, very interesting stuff. I think it's great for us to look back and see how Southern Baptists saw themselves at the time. Uh, because that helps us when we're looking um, back and seeing uh, seeing who we were back then. So very interesting stuff. Always good to to have some introspection. And they were uh, e- they were doing it even back then this week in SBC history. Yep. Yeah. Those those are kind of neat. I would love to see a 
you know, Southern Baptist speak out 17 or 16, you know, whatever it may be. Why don't you pitch um, that to Scott McConnell? I should pitch that to Scott McConnell. Yes. Let us rank our entities. Oh, that, that, oh, that doesn't sound like a good idea at all. <laughs> I think that's maybe, that may have been why they stopped this thing. Somebody said, no, enough of that. But without that question, you could do the keywords. That would be fun. Oh, the keywords would be fascinating. We did a, yes. did a thing on Dr. Rayner's website with when you hear the word Baptist, what do you think? And like word association. And well-organized was not one of them. I'll just throw that out there. Uh, missions-minded was. so. Absolutely. I know some well-organized Baptists. There are some well-organized Baptists. I will say that. I work with a bunch of them, and, and I know you, and there's, there's a lot of well-organized Baptists, but sometimes things are just poof, so you never know. Let's do it. We'll do a shout-out to someone. Elizabeth Graham, best organized oh, Southern Baptist word. I've ever met. Yes, and Amy Jordan. I'm going to throw her in there, too. All right. So, all right. Um, oh, Amy. Yes. Breaking news while we're recording today. North Greenville University has a new president. Yes, Gene Fant. He comes to North Greenville from Palm Beach Atlantic. He's a provost down there uh, via, um, I, I would, I guess you could say, Union University as well. He was over there with Dr. David Dockery. Yes, he was uh, executive vice president for academic administration and dean of the faculty at Union for years. Uh, very well respected there. And then in 2014, went and became the provost and chief academic officer at Palm Beach Atlantic. So a lot of experience um, in the university world and uh, specifically in the uh, Baptist university world. So I know that North Greenville has been through uh, a lot in the last couple of years. And so this is exciting for them uh, to, to be able to look uh, to Dr. Fant and to kind of have a vision going forward. Yep. I guess when you, you look at the presidential search at North Greenville, you could say it's over. All right. That's going to bring us to our resources of the week. My resource of the week, Amy, is a new book, Reformation 500. Uh, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. There's a new book out in partnership with the Ryan Center for Biblical Studies at Union University, who we just mentioned, and B&H Academic, edited by Ryan Van Ness and J. Michael Garrett. It's a conglomeration of uh, essays and stuff on how the greatest revival since Pentecost continues to shape the world today. Contributors include Carl Truman, Timothy George, David Donald, Jeff Three, and Peter Leithart. Uh, so kind of a neat little book, big uh, but if you're into the Reformation stuff and the 500th anniversary this year, check that out. Nice. Uh, well, now, I, I shared something on Twitter this week that someone suggested I should make uh, my resource of the week. Uh, so I had posted, I think it was on President's Day. It was this pewter mold uh, that looked like George Washington that you could turn your uh, you could turn your ice cream into this head of George Washington. Very fascinating. So Brett That's Leatherwood. What? That's freaky. Yeah, it's very interesting, a little piece. So Brent Leatherwood uh, responded on Twitter and said, this should be a resource for the week, um, which I thought was pretty hilarious. I was laughing. Well, thanks for listening, Brent. We yes, appreciate it. I was laughing out loud at my desk, um, but very interesting. There were 14 uh, pewter ice cream molds uh, back then. I guess there was a that was a very popular thing. But I, I have been in the mode for uh, presidential. I've been beefing up my uh, presidential and first lady libraries because President Day, President's Day got me all um, into it. And uh, I just bought one on uh, Woodrow Wilson by A. Scott Berg. It, it's been around for a little while, but it arrived yesterday. Uh, so I'm going to share that. A uh, very I interesting time in our history, uh, World War One, and I, I pretty much, I, it's my goal in life to have a biography of every president, at least one, and of every first lady, which is kind of hard because 
there's not full biographies on every first lady, but there's usually something. Uh, but this was uh, one of my new ones. So I hadn't started it yet, but I'm going to throw it out there uh, for people to check out. I had great uncles named after presidents. You would appreciate that. One That's was Woodrow cool. Wilson. Nice. Another one was William McKinley. Um, so it, it, it was kind of strange that we don't really name people after presidents anymore, I guess, yeah. these days. It is really interesting. The last few summers, so uh, like three summers ago, we were in Savannah for something and uh, just for the day on our way to Florida. And we walk by and see the the birthplace of Ellen Wilson, uh, which is was his first wife and the church where her father was a pastor. And then, uh, so that was kind of interesting checking all that out. Well, then the next year on our way to Columbus uh, for uh, the SBC, we were in the town where Edith Wilson, his second wife, had been born, and we saw where she had lived, and I think the church where she attended. So then last year, we were in Wilmington and passed by this church that says something, and it was where Woodrow Wilson had lived as a boy, and his father had been pastor of this church. So I'm starting to think I need to look this summer and see where I'm going to end up. I, I feel like I need to read this biography because everywhere we go, uh, we're we're checking out something in Wilson history. I have read a biography of his second wife, Edith, and she was a very fascinating individual and probably in a very unconstitutional way ran oh, our yeah. country for a That's while. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the most... Oh, he's fine. He's just resting back there. Do yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, signing for him. So I uh, can't prove anything, but but all the evidence points to it. So anyway, yeah. I think that's going to be a great uh, great book to read. Like I said, it's been around for a little while, but I'm, I'm looking forward to catching up with it. We have all the links to all the stories that we talked about this week on sbcthisweek.com. Also added something to the website this week. Uh, I get questions about it all the time. Where can we find trustee lists for each entity? Now it's on the sidebar at sbcthisweek.com for your convenience. Uh, and so I don't have to keep answering those emails. So, And this um, is something that's been public always. This yeah, is it's always we, been public. It's yeah, in we the operate book in reports and way. everything. So um, it, it's out there. It's just, it, it was kind of hard to find in the past in some websites. So we have it on our website at sbcthisweek.com. You can check that out if you need that information for whatever. Uh, but it's there. And Amy, uh, I'm excited to have Dr. Rummage on next week. Should be a good thing. Yep. Check out next week's episode. Check out all the links from all the stories we talked about today. And we'll see you next week. See you next week.